It's uncool to claim you used to room with Bird or that you have Bird's axe. And, you know, it's even less cool to ask, who is Bird? It's, it's uncool to nod on the street corner waiting for the light to change. And it is uncool to wear shades after sunset, you know, unless you should be wearing shades after sunset. You know, in which case it is uncool to take them off. Is it too complicated to just keep my records in the category, okay? Just put the rock and roll in with the rock and roll. Put the R&B in with the R&B. I mean, you're not going to put Charlie Parker in with the rock and roll, would you? Would you? I don't know. Who is Charlie Parker? Jazz! Jazz! He's, he was the greatest jazz saxophone player that ever lived! What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's not just music. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, so pleased to have George Bornstein here in the studio with me. Um, George, uh, welcome back to Living Writers. Thank you, T. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to see you. <laughs> it's, it's lovely to see you. And thanks for picking the songs, the music for today's program. I appreciate it. Well, Irish so, music is wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about the one that we just heard uh, the, that started the program? Yes, that was uh, one of the songs that was used in the famous 1916 Rising. It was written by a churchman. And uh, canon, I think. I can't remember. If I'd known you were going to ask me, oh, I would have looked it up. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and it's part of the, you know, very pro-Ireland, almost glorifying uh, of that, which is when I began going to Ireland. Uh, when was that? Yeah. Well, that was in the, uh, about 1970. And uh, so f- over 40 years ago now. and A long uh, relationship with Ireland, George. <laughs> it has. It has. I think everybody feels there's some 
country that if they weren't citizens of their own country, they would be a citizen of. And my wife and I have always felt that way about Ireland. There's just something about it that uh, speaks to us. And so, uh, and especially when I was uh, active at the university, I taught here for 40 years. Uh, uh, and Michigan's we, own. Michigan's own. And we had <laughs> research money. So we went to Ireland a lot so I could look at the manuscripts of Yeats. And that's how I got into editing him and then writing about him and... Uh, Met his kids, who were quite wonderful. Uh, they're very generous. Not all writers' kids are so generous. For example, uh, not to go into it, but uh, Joyce's kids are very difficult to deal with. Uh, Yates's kids always thought of themselves as almost trustees of the manuscripts on behalf of the country. And so uh, they were very welcoming. I worked in the houses of each of them. Anne and Michael were the two ones. Uh, Michael became a uh, lawyer and politician, and Anne became uh, one of the best-known Irish painters of her generation. And she became a friend because one day uh, she, I was looking at manuscripts in her house, and I said, could I bring my wife tomorrow? And she said, sure. And it turned out that was when Prince Charles married Diana. And so uh, they uh, Anne watched and, it on the television together. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, Anne, who had a kind of a wicked sense of humor uh, as the camera looked down from the top of... Uh, uh, you know, the, the place, uh, she said, well, I think she looks just like a wasp with that long gown <laughs> trailing after her. And anyway, she and my wife became very friendly while I just worked on the Yates manuscripts in a different room. And um, so then we were friends from then on, and we would always uh, uh, take her to dinner, or show up with pastries or whatever. She was a wonderful woman, never, uh, never married. And... Um, my wife once asked her, uh, what's it like to be the subject of one of the most famous lyrics of the English language, a prayer for my daughter? And Anne, who uh, had a wonderfully self-deprecating way about her, said, well, it does sort of bang around after you a bit. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure she's had her own fair share of people yeah. <laughs> reciting it for her. She did. And so, uh, uh, so that was quite interesting. And she told endless stories about her father, who uh, was a devoted father, but uh, nearsighted and uh, often preoccupied. And so once when he came home from the city, his son, Michael, who was a little boy, then jumped out and said boo or whatever it was. And uh, Yates looked at him and said, um, and whose little boy are you? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Actually, my my Nana Hetzel, my grandma who came over mm -hmm. um, that we before the program started, I was saying on a boat from Ireland when yes. she was a very young girl. She said that to me, but she was in her 90s when she said it. Well, that's like, right. whose, child are, whose child are you? Whose child is this? No, <laughs> that, well, it's an Irish thing, George. <laughs> it is. And uh, I have actually, oddly enough... Uh, 
for someone like me, most of whose family are East European Jews, but there was one of them, my grandmother was one of eight children, one of whom got so sick on the boat from Eastern Europe to America that when it stopped to refuel in Cork Harbor, Did Ireland, she just say, I've arrived? He, I'm, he just said, that's said, it. I'm, I'm going to stay I'm in Cork? I'm not going any farther. And uh, so he stayed in Cork and became moderately successful. And there's a wonderful story about him, which I had always thought was invented because it's such a good story. It couldn't be true. But I think it is true because I was reading a memoir written by uh, his, I think it was grandson. Um, And in there, he tells the same story that I'd always heard in my family, even though the two families on the different sides of the water had never uh, interacted with each other at all. And that is that when he got to Ireland, he was interviewed by the customs official who was going down a list of questions, and he got to the question, religion. And my ancestors said, Jewish. And the guy said, no, no, I mean religion. And the ancestors said, doubtless in a heavy uh, East European accent, Jewish. And they went around like this several times. And finally, uh, the guy said, wait here. And he went and he got his supervisor. And the supervisor came. And um, the guy said to the supervisor, now listen to this. And he said again, religion. And my uh, grandfather, great-grandfather, I was a little unclear always about what he was, once again said Jewish. And the supervisor looked out and then looked back and said, I see what you mean. Just put down no religion at all. And that's the way it was in Ireland in those days. You were either Protestant or Catholic. And being Jewish was sort of outside the box. So that's... <laughs> but it was almost like I couldn't hear it. <laughs> yeah. it, was like it wow. And so um, did you connect with this this part of your family when you went over in 1970? I didn't, I didn't because I didn't know about them in 1970. And by the time I did know about them, we weren't going so often. And, uh, and they uh, didn't live there anymore because... Uh, as with many Jewish families, there were not enough Jewish people to provide marriage partners for the next generation. And so uh, they tended to move to first Dublin and then eventually England, which mine did too, except for the guy who wrote the book. His name is Stanley Price. And um, he moved to L.A. for some reason. He was both a writer and a screenwriter. And good stories are valued. Yes, they are. <laughs> Take your story so, there. <laughs> so he was, uh, I wish I had known them. Uh, so many oh. of the people, you know, I knew passed on now, uh, including Yates' kids. But Well, George, we're here today because to talk about... Um, and I'm so glad you're here. Uh, the the Wild Swans at Cool has just mm. been um, a, a a new facsimile has just been mm. um, published by Scribner, and and you've written the introduction and the notes to mm. it. And so um, we're here. So I'll you know what I'm gonna read your bio because before we get too deep into the program, so that that folks um, 
I'm taking it for granted that everyone knows you, George. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. Um, George Bornstein has written seven critical books on 19th and 20th century literature. He has produced numerous major editions of modernist works, including two volumes on Yeats's early poetry for the Cornell Yeats series and the collection Under the Moon unpublished early poetry by W.B. Yeats. He has held fellowships from the American Council of Learned Societies, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Guggenheim Foundation, and has served as president of the Society for Textual Scholarship. He is the former C.A. Patrides, Patrides. Patrides, thanks, professor of literature at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. So, so um, Patrides, Patrides. Patrides. Okay, I'll just keep saying it the wrong. You'll be like, "Come yeah. on, Hetzel." What? Why did you choose this as your uh, your title, George? Well, a uh, good question um, for two reasons. One, he was a very great scholar who taught here, and the other is that he was the first member, known to me at least, of the University of Michigan faculty who passed away from AIDS. And at that time, AIDS was uh, scaring people and... Uh, Such the, the un- unknown epidemic. Exactly. And so I picked the name partly because he was a friend and a great scholar, but also um, as part of the just resistance to this demonizing uh, at the time of people who had AIDS. And um, so that was my reason. And uh, oddly enough... Uh, it ended up introducing me to a number of uh, well-known gay people in English literature who knew what I'd done and why and were very uh, uh, happy that I'd done that. So so that that, that was Dinos, who was a, a, a hilarious man in addition to being a scholar, a uh, great scholar. He... Um, uh, during the war had been in Greece as well as New York and served as a messenger for the Greek resistance movement against the Nazis. And afterwards, he was knighted by, and uh, yes, I think knighted by the Greek patriarch of Jerusalem uh, for his service against the Nazis. Wow. So he was an admirable man. Such an interesting life, too. Yeah. And so wonderful that you commemorated in this, this oh, way, yeah. in his memory. Absolutely. He was, uh, yeah, and he was a close friend, too, we, we, of both me and my wife. We liked him very much. It seems like you're such a part of this university, George. Well, I was here for a long time. Uh, never... And you still are. Yes, I still am here. And, and you still aren't you still don't you still have an office? Okay. I do. It's not as nice as the one I had when I was in active service, but it uh I do have one and I uh actually did this book uh, mostly in mm. that office. Uh, so that was very helpful. So it's a good it's, it's an office with good vibes. <laughs> it is. It is. And I think the university uh, I just want to get in a plug for this um could do more for its retired faculty who are still active. Uh, it's like you, once you retire, you become somewhat invisible or something. And uh, I do have the office and a 
very small research support, for which I'm grateful. And uh, uh, But I, I think they could do more. I know Harvard has a whole building, for example, for retired faculty with individual offices and support staff. And That's a great idea. It is, because there are people who are attached to the university, both emotionally as well as intellectually, and uh, the ones who are still active are, you know, when I... Still I go producing to, work. Yes, and when I go to conferences, which I'm going to do next week, uh, I'm always introduced as uh, being at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. So as I think you are. Nice, as I am, yes. Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll talk more. Of okay. course. Today okay. on the program, George Bornstein is here. Um, we'll be talking about the wild swans at Cool. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We've got the Liz Engineering. We'll be back. Down by the Sally Gardens, my love and I did meet. She passed the Sally Gardens with little snow, I If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, George Bornstein is here. We've got Yates's book, The Wild Swans at Cool, here on the table before us. And we also have, it's part of it, it's been reissued. George, would you mind talking about this series from Scribner and what makes it its unusual? Um, sure, I will. And it's... Um... Uh, it's an important series, I think, because Yeats, as a writer, particularly after the age of 30 when his first collected poems came out, had enough clout so that he had considerable influence over what his books looked like. Mm -hmm. And this is a facsimile series, and the reason it's a facsimile series is so the books can look as close to the originals as possible. These are in paperback, of course, which keeps them affordable. Uh, you can uh, 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 
you know, buy them at the bookstore and so on. Uh, available now. Available now. <laughs> and uh, at both Nicola's and... Literati. Uh, Literati, <laughs> yes. And uh, and other places. I think Barnes & Noble has it, too. Oh, and there was just an ad also, right? In... There was, yeah, in the main professional journal for teachers of English called PMLA. And they had uh, all three of these. There are only three in the series. And uh, all of them have covers that are facsimiles of the original covers, uh, which were designed by acquaintances, or in the case of the Wild Swans at Cool, uh, a friend of Yeats's uh, called T. Sturge Moore, who was his favorite designer, did, uh, oh, I think about a dozen of Yeats's books. And they would write back and forth uh, about the design and so on. And so in the case of the Wild Swans at Cool, as you see, it's very geometric. It's uh, dark blue with uh, stamped in gold. And um, uh, it illustrates one of Yeats's favorite uh, sayings from the classical Egyptian Hermes Trismegistus, uh, thrice great Hermes, Yeats called him. Uh, and the line is, as above so below. And if you look at this cover, you'll see that above is a swan looking down, and at the bottom is a different swan uh, on the verge of looking up, possibly looking up. And uh, that's to um, illustrate that saying of uh, thrice great Hermes. And uh, there are other things uh, about it as well. This is the actually the second edition, but the first commercial edition of Yeats. The very first edition, as with all of Yeats's, or most of Yeats's uh, mature poetry, was published by privately by something called the Kula Press, C-U-A-L-A, in Ireland, run by Yeats's sister, Elizabeth Corbett Yeats. And... Um, I'll just read you its uh, uh, on a, from its title page and then um, explain why that's important. It says, Here ends the wild swans at cool, other verses in a play in verse by William Butler Yeats. 400 copies of this book have been printed and published by Elizabeth Corbett Yeats on paper made in Ireland at the Coola Press Churchtown Dundrum in the county of Dublin, Ireland, finished on the 10th of October in the year 1917. Now, 1917 was a year after the famous Easter Rising, uh, which this studio uh, and Liz in particular uh, played a famous song of uh, by way of introduction. So, uh, and the... Uh, the Kula Press was unusual for at least two reasons, one of which is that it was a feminist press. It was founded uh, because there were very few ways for women, independent women, to make a living in Ireland of the day. And so the Kula was not only uh, published and edited by Elizabeth Corbett Yeats, but every person who worked there was female. And so it was an all-women press. And, and not only were they all women, but they tended to be um, uh, strongly nationalist women. 
So here it's pointed out that this is in the year 1917, one year after the 1916 revolution that was five years later to lead to Irish independence. And um, uh, and it's even, as it says here, they were, it was published on paper made in Ireland. Uh, that is part of its whole nationalist stance of this press and the women who worked there and founded it, whether all the way from typesetters up to uh, the editor-in-chief, who was uh, Yeats's sister, Lolly. It was her nickname in the family. He had another sister called Lily, uh, who ran another part of Kula Press. And uh, just one more thing about this is worth... Uh, mentioning that there were only 400 copies printed. It was really uh, uh, more for wealthy collectors, frankly, uh, unlike the uh, facsimile edition, which is a facsimile of one that was uh, four times as large and published commercially. Uh, on um, and, and which was found at the University of Michigan Library. Yes. You used the, the version that we have here in the rare books. We did. I used my own version for most of the text, but their version had a clearer cover. And so uh, they gave me permission to use their version as the cover. And it might be worth mentioning that the University of Michigan rare book librarians are just really wonderful. They're very uh, helpful they're very knowledgeable, and it's been a pleasure uh, throughout my work on Yates to have them available as a resource. Uh, so working in this library, as well as going over to work in the archives in, in yes. are they in Dublin? They are in Dublin for the most part. They're in, uh, they used to be in the houses of Yeats' children uh, who presented them to the National Library of Ireland as a gift. Uh, so that they would be available to scholars and Irish people and uh, could be consulted. Um, and some of them, a few of them, are in the Trinity College Dublin Library as well. Okay. Uh, but that's most of them. And it's uh, interesting. I, when I went to Ireland originally, I was working in the houses of Michael Yates and Anne Yates. Michael had most of the manuscripts. Anne had some of the manuscripts and a lot of the material pertaining to her uncle Jack, as she always called him, who was the most famous Irish painter of his generation. And he had a big influence on Anne Yates, who became a painter yeah. as well. Uh, and so I uh, was working in the um, library in Anne's library and she was very generous in allowing access to it and my wife was watching the royal wedding right as Anne. we were saying and, yeah with, yep. uh, <laughs> as we were and by the end of it uh, they were great friends oh. and uh, and so anyway they eventually uh, gave uh, the stuff to the National Library of Ireland. And, and you continued a, the relationship with Michael and Anne, it sounds Well, like, I did but... continue it. They passed away, alas. Uh, you know, they were born in, uh, I think, 1919 and 1917 or something, so or 21. Time. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, but they had uh, long lives, and they had children who continued the family tradition of... Uh, How could you not, really? Like, yeah. to, to be named Yates in Ireland, you'd have to have a calling. You would. And, <laughs> and, uh, um, and when, when I first met them, Yates was a little bit... 
uh, viewed a little bit oddly in Ireland because Absolutely. on the one hand, he was a great poet, obviously, the greatest Irish poet. But on the other hand, he was a Protestant at a time when it mattered whether you were Protestant or Catholic. It matters less nowadays than it did then. And so the fact that they were of the old Anglo-Irish Protestant class uh, sort of marked them a little bit uh, in terms of class. Even with that print run of the book, as you were saying, those 400 copies of the original edition for more of the elite. Yes, and Yeats actually um, continues to sell more copies abroad, particularly in the U.S. and England, Mm -hmm. than in Ireland, oddly enough. Who do you Uh, think is the favorite poet in Ireland of the Irish, or is it possible to even say? Well, I don't know. Uh, certainly, when he was alive, he just recently passed away. Seamus Heaney, yeah, that's was, yeah. and Seamus became a friend too, and uh, worked with. Uh, uh, you know, he also defended Yeats uh, when Yeats was being attacked by the rest of the, um, uh, you know, that group associated with uh, Northern Ireland. And uh, Heaney always defended Yeats, which I thought was great. And we were once at the Yeats Summer School together, and the director came in and said, I am really sorry, Mr. Heaney, but four times as many people have signed up for your creative writing seminar as the seminar can hold. And Seamus thought for a minute, and then he said, well... That's all right. Just divide them into four groups, and I'll do all four. No extra fee. And I asked him what a afterwards. <laughs> yeah, he was. Why he did that? And he said, and I've always remembered this. He said, I thought I owed it to Yates. Yeah, let's take a short break and then we'll be back today on the program. George Bornstein is here. Um, We've got The Wild Swans at Cool on the Table Before Us by Yates. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. I went out to the Hazelwood. Fire was in my head And I cut and peeled a hazel wand And hooked a berry on a thread And when white moths were on the wing stars were flickering out I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout When I had laid it on the floor I went to blow the fire aflame But something rustled on the floor And someone called me by my name 
it had become a glimmering girl. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, George Bornstein is here in the studio. We're talking about W.B. Yeats. Um, we've got the wild swans at Cool here on the table with us. Um, and this... So this this edition, George, did you say, was it out in 1919? Uh, the, the yes. The first one, it's on the inside title page, right? It's Yeah, the, it originally was 1919 edition, which was considerably augmented from the very first Kula Press that we were talking about, yes. which was 1917. And, like, did... Why? Why is that? It sounds like Yeats was always also revising poems Ye- in different editions. Yeats was one of the great revisers of all time. Almost all of the poems go through multiple manuscript versions. So, what do you think about that as a Yeats scholar? Like, was it something like at first, like, were you like, oh my goodness, and this is completely different? Oh, this, oh this, or what? Yeah, what was it like for you when you were well, in these it, archives? Or? It was exciting, uh, and it was also exciting because he had almost endless lists of different orders to print the poems in for each volume, and it's clear that for Yeats, the unit of poetry was really the volume, not the individual lyric, because he arranged uh, the volumes in order with great care. And, uh, and if you look through them with this in mind, one can see that they tell stories. Uh, very often, the first poem will stake out a position that the rest of the volume argues with and against, and he ends up in a very different place. And that's the case of this volume, too, where The Wild Swans at Cool, the title poem, is the first one. It's about, uh, well, it's about many things, but including um, uh, the sort of uh, inspiration going away. And then it ends up with the Michael Robardes and the Dancer, where the inspiration is back. And in the course of the volume, he recovers that. But the first poem is especially interesting because his main revision, uh, of course, there were revisions in diction, in words, but the main revision is that he changed the order of the stanzas. And when he changed the order of the stanzas, he changed uh, the whole impact of the poem. So that, And he did that for this, the second edition, uh, which uh, was the introduction to a volume about the recovery of inspiration, poetic inspiration. So do you think by changing the order then, that's what opens up this this feeling and of recovery? Is that very, Would that be his reasoning? Yes, I think his so, instinct? because it begins uh, the way the poem now begins. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Uh, under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. And it continues, the 19th autumn has come upon me since first I made my count. And as the poem continues, the current last stanza was not last, it was third. But it was put last in a way that changes the meaning of the poem, which used to end originally Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams, or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. 
passion or conquest wander where they will attend upon them still. The end. But now it doesn't end that way. It ends with what used to be the third stanza. Do you, uh, George, do you want to read the whole poem and then read it? With, so then we'll actually hear it, how the stanza is that it sure. that, how it ends. Uh, all right. Just, do you uh, mind? I love to read Yeats. <laughs> uh, so the trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since first I made my count. I saw before I'd well finished all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams, or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest wander where they will, attend upon them still. But... That used to be the last stanza, but now the last stanza is the former third. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lakes wood, lakes edge or pool, delight men's eyes? When I awake some day to find they have flown away. So it totally changes the whole thrust of the poem from the poet is defeated, unlike the swans, uh, they wander where they will, passion or conquest attend upon them still, but not on him. And in uh, the revised version with the last stanza now being there, it's uh, uh, quite different. And they now delight men's eyes when I awake someday to find they have flown away. And of course, there's the question of what does he awake to? Is he awaking to a sort of afterlife or some other world, or is he just awaking from this trance or dreamlike state? Because he's in his early 50s when he's yes. writing these poems. Yes, yes, he was exactly uh, in his early 50s. And um, so just by changing the order of the stanzas, it really changes the whole thrust and direction of the poem. And of course, cool was the estate of his great friend and patron, Lady Gregory. And um, and did you go to this estate, George, in your research? I did. And uh, tragically, the house had been pulled down uh, by a, a contractor who sold the materials uh, for money. That would not have happened uh, 20 years on, but it did then. And it was part of this, again, uh, opposition to the... Uh, Protestant upper class that had once controlled Ireland, of which Lady which Gregory was a part. Was part of. Yeah, so it makes and, sense. It, it does make sense. Yeah, and now, of course, uh, the government wishes he hadn't done that because it would be an incredible tourist attraction. Well, the tower is there. The, the tower, tower is there, and you can visit it. It's a national yeah. monument now. <laughs> and uh, and at Cool Park, the lake is still there, and the woods are still there. And perhaps some swans. Uh, yes, there are swans there, but there is not a house anymore. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, you know, it's almost like Derry Dow with an absent present or something. Uh, it's not there. And, uh, uh, but this book is, and of course he wrote 
numerous poems to Lady Gregory or about her. One of the major, well, the next poem. Yes. Uh, in this, in the book. So, and you were talking about how important the sequencing of the poems, the it, placement was for Yeats. It was, and this is a poem that was added for the second edition. It was not in the first edition at all. It's called In Memory of Major Robert Gregory. Robert Gregory was the son of Lady Gregory. He was killed by what is now called friendly fire in World War I. In he Italy, was, right? In Italy. He was uh, an aviator. And, uh, and there's another poem about uh, him as an aviator that comes shortly after this. It's called An Irish Airman Foresees His Death. Death. That's Robert Gregory. And it's one of Yeats's great, great poems uh, uh, in which he begins by saying they're settled in the house. He means the tower house that he took over partly because it was near Lady Gregory's house. And after independence, the Irish government was offering such homes at bargain prices if the new owners would agree to fix them up. So Yates bought this tower that was just falling apart and uh, had it remade and fixed up and uh, painted inside, and he had furniture made for it. And the Yates family lived there summers for 10 years uh, until they finally moved back uh, to Dublin for the summers. But while the children were growing up, the Yates family lived there. And uh, Anne has the funny story of uh, Yates wanted to have ducks, and his wife... Uh, Georgie Hydley's knew who would end up looking after the ducks. And so she said, now, Willie, we're not having ducks. And uh, But nonetheless, Yates kept this up. And uh, one summer he said, now when we get the ducks, and she replied, remember, we're not having ducks. And he said, right, we're not, not having ducks. Uh, but finally, uh, she said, according to Anne's memory, but I saw after some years that he had ducks on the brain, so <laughs> we had to have ducks. <laughs> and uh, that was great for the kids uh, as well. George, so this, so this makes me also think, because you, you just know this whole—it's uh, it's clear to me as I, I listen mm. that you just know this family in a way, not just yeah. the poet and his work, but— these stories, this family, inside and out in some way. Yes, Um, they were very generous in sharing them with me. And and you've also published, it seems like as a scholar, you've made it part of your life's work to publish his early poems, Yeats's early Mm -hmm. sort of uncollected poems. Is that right? Some of them are uncollected. uh, Some of them are collected in the early volumes. (gasps) Okay. Because he seems like also such a professional like he really he tended to this uh, vocation of his. He believed in it. Uh, he did, and as he much was as the, Ireland did. One of the more. few poets of the time who uh, both made his living by poetry and was professionally a poet. If you think of T. S. Eliot, for example, he was an editor at Faber and Faber, and uh, uh, almost all of the well-known poets of the age had other jobs. Uh, Wallace Stevens was an insurance executive. Yeats, on the other hand, was, was a poet, and uh, he was also a playwright. He wrote poetic plays. But uh, uh, 
he the poetry was it for him and uh, and these poetic plays and is, is it also though because he knew people like he had patrons as well is that part of the story uh, to some extent but not for just his, a they lot were his friends yeah yeah they uh, lady gregory was a patron but mostly he did it by just cobbling together uh well he'd get paid for the poems of course and that was important to him. People forget that poets like to be paid for their work. And Yeats certainly... Uh, <laughs> That's another good the, plug that you're making today uh, yeah. on the program. <laughs> right. So everyone should run out and buy this book. Uh, so that, uh, How did you decide to do the introduction for for this well, one and also for the, the Winding Stair and other poems? I did. Well, I was good friends with Another, do you have to stop for, with uh, uh, another uh, Yates, well-known Yates editor, Richard Finneran, who passed away, did the original volume of The Tower, and Richard passed away uh, some years ago, almost 10 now, and, uh, and Scribner came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a follow-up volume, uh, and that's where the one, The Winding Stair, came from, and then... That sold well. They they are a business, and so uh, they asked me if I wanted to do another one, and I said, "Sure." You know, it's a lot of fun to work on these, and uh, when you're retired, it's um, it's a nice thing to do. And so, and that's how the your your work on the wild swans at Cool came to be. Yes, you wrote it is. The introduction at your office here at University. Yeah, of I did, and and it has notes in the back too, where I sort of annotate uh, uh, things that people might not pick up of uh, references in the poems. That part, it seems like that could be. I don't know how you you kept a kept it contained. I could see how that could get get quite long too. Yeah. Yes, it can, and that's actually a subject of debate among editors is how, how many? long should the notes be. Uh, some editors just fill them chock full, so it's actually longer than the text by the writer. I don't do that. I think it should be the minimum that the reader needs to make sense out of the poem, and then they can go farther if they want to. And, but And give maybe space for the, the reader to be, trust the reader in the poem, too. Yes, absolutely. Let's, and George, let's take, a, let's take a short break, and then we'll come right back, okay? okay. Today on Living Writers, George Bornstein is here. Um, the Wild Swans at Cool, uh, on the table with us by Yates. We'll be back. Armored cars and tanks and guns came to take away our sons, but every man must stand behind the men behind the wire. Through the little streets of Belfast in the dark of early morn, British soldiers came a-running, wrecking little homes with scorn. Hear the sobs of crying children, dragging fathers from their bed. Watch the scene as helpless mothers, watch the blood fall from their head. Armored cars and tanks and guns came to take away our sons. But every man must stand behind the men behind the wire. Not for them a judge or jury, or indeed a crime at all. Being Irish means they're guilty, so we're guilty one and all. Round the world the truth will echo, Cromwell's men are here again. England's name again is sullied in the eyes of honest men. Armored cars and tanks and guns came to take away our sons. But every man must stand behind the men behind the wire. 
Proudly march behind our banner, proudly march behind our men. We will have them free to help us build a nation once again. On the people step together, proudly marching on your way. Never fear. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, George Bornstein is here in the studio. We're talking about W.B. Yeats, um, the wild swans at Cool on the table with us. Um, so, Nobel Prize in Literature winner. He is. He was the um, first Irishman to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. There have been some others since, but uh, including. Like Heaney. <laughs> well, yeah, including Seamus Heaney, exactly. And I think one characteristic of Yeats is that he wrote so many terrific poems. If you think about poets who are well-known in English, say Keats, who's certainly a great poet, but if you took maybe the six odes and a couple of other Keats poems out of his canon, he'd be an interesting minor poet. Whereas Yeats, it, it, even the minor poems are stunning, and an example is on being asked for a war poem, which uh, refers to something he asked, uh, wrote during the First World War, and there was a book being put together by uh, various English writers of war poetry. And Yeats declined, but he did so in a poem that actually uh, became quite well known. It's called On Being Asked for a War Poem. And it begins, well, it's only six lines, so I'll read it. I think it better that in times like these a poet keep his mouth shut. He later revised that line. Uh, for in truth, we have no gift to set a statesman right. He has had enough of meddling who can please a young girl in the indolence of her youth or an old man on a winter's night. Just stunning. <laughs> and it's a throwaway poem. It's, uh, you know, he wrote dozens like this. Uh, and How did he revise that line? Uh, he changed it. Yes. It, at the moment, it's very colloquial. Uh, a poet keep his mouth shut. And he changed it to, uh, I think it better than in times like these, a poet, um, uh, I'm just thinking of keep his mouth shut again, a poet's mouth be silent, Ooh. which you see is a whole range uh, upward in register and tone, uh, right, right. as opposed to keep his mouth shut. And uh, what you, But what do you think? Like, do you think, so he really thought it was better to keep his mouth shut or his mouth be silent. <laughs> I don't know which one he... Yeah, or, I think his mouth be silent because I think he may have thought that in times like these that a poet keep his mouth shut was a little too colloquial for right. the famous Yeatsian tone of, mm. uh, you know, a poet's mouth be silent. Uh, but it's really a wonderful short poem and uh, particularly he has had enough of meddling who can please a young girl in the indolence of her youth or an old man on a winter's night. And it's also that same Yeats, uh, he called them antinomies, by which he meant opposites. But it's the same way. Notice there's the young girl and the old man. Uh, she's in the in uh, indolence of her youth. He's writing on a winter night. And Yeats always tried to combine these opposites in his poetry. Uh, Habit he ascribed to Dante, among others. Dante was a big influence on his. And so this poem... Um, uh, came out in a book of poems by poets of the First World War. And 
uh, uh, even though it declined, it's well, Yeats does this all the time. It's like an anti-poem. Yes, exactly. So in a book of poems that are for war in some way or speaking on well right? they or, often are are, are, or to commemorate, are criticizing or critici- too. right right but he uh, yates has a habit of writing poems about how he can't write a poem anymore and there are a number of the great ones are like that and uh, do you think here he also conflates like the poet with the statesman yeah though like, here even he, for himself mm, like it's like mm. not just for a states that's what i wonder about this poem Because maybe he's saying no, but actually he does have quite a bit to say about it. Well, he does. And later in life, he would, in fact, become a statesman. Yeats was appointed to the first Senate of an independent Ireland and served for six years. He chaired the committee that designed the coinage, for example. And he, to his credit, um, led the fight to keep divorce legal in Ireland, uh, he didn't win it, but he at least fought for it. And um, uh, and he has a famous speech on the divorce bill that is often uh, compared to Milton, who also wrote about such things. And Yeats, uh, so he did get into a sort of statesmanlike time, but that was later on and very far from where he was both early and at the time of this volume, uh, the early poetry tends not to be so political, except in the cultural sense of by writing about Irish myth. He was making a political statement in the Ireland of his time. Ireland (coughs) at the time uh, was part of England. It was the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And... um, and he was part of a movement of what you might call cultural nationalism that wanted to resurrect uh, Irish myths, uh, particularly the myth of Cahulin, uh spelled Cachulain. It's really hard to know how to pronounce Irish things. I usually just ask an Irish person, how do you pronounce it? And they explain it to me. And uh, uh, so there's that. But in writing about Irish myth and Irish places. He was, in fact, um, making a somewhat political gesture. His mentor was the old Fenian in Ireland. A Fenian was someone who uh, fought for Irish independence. Famous man at the time called John O'Leary, and Yeats was part of his circle. And um, uh, O'Leary had spent uh, 20 years in prison for Fenian activities and was released, came back and started a circle of uh, young people around him whose views uh, uh, very much resembled his own, and, and he would influence them. Yates was one, Catherine Tynan was one, uh, there were uh, a number of the literary people who who followed that, and so, um, and he wrote a great elegy when O'Leary passed away with the uh, famous uh, couplet at the end of each stanza, Romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. And uh, um, So like you were saying earlier, there's so much of Yeats is, is comes back and is people quote it. It's like he's, he's spoken of. He's in the he culture is. even today yeah. or the time. 
Oh, yes, it is very much. And especially nowadays, that line uh, from uh, uh, the second coming about uh, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world is quoted every time you pick up a newspaper almost. There are uh, lots of uh, uh, citations of that one. And Yeats, in fact, is quoted in an amazing number of movies. He's quoted in even ones that don't have anything to do with Ireland, uh, like the World War II film Memphis Bell uh, has a Yeats quote on the airplane, Memphis Bell, uh, used there. And this happens all the time. He's still a kind of a presence in uh, the cultural world. And, so and I, he's playing. I have, so this is, this is going to be a completely unfair question, George. What poem do you love the sound of in the wild swans at cool like like the 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 oral the oral quality like would you oh. would you read another poem for us because i oh i love to read yeats poems yes i would be happy to it uh but i know there's so many so i wonder which will you'll pick for today which do you feel is your favorite for today well i think it's a poem he wrote about the great love of his life before his marriage Maud gun uh, and um, he says, it's called Broken Dreams. And he says, there is gray in your hair. Young men no longer suddenly catch their breath when you are passing. But maybe some old gaffer mutters a blessing because it was your prayer that recovered him upon the bed of death. For your soul's sake that all heart's sake have known and given to others all heart's sake. From meager girlhoods putting on burdensome beauty for your soul's sake, heaven has put away the stroke of her doom, so great a portion in the peace you make by merely walking in a room. Your beauty can but leave us vague memories, nothing but memories. A young man whom the old men are done talking will say to an old man, tell me of that lady, the poet, stubborn with his passion, sang us, whose age might well have chilled his blood. Vague memories, nothing but memories. But in the grave, all shall be renewed. And the certainty that I shall see that lady leaning or standing or walking in the first loveliness of womanhood and with the fervor of my youthful eyes have set me muttering like a fool. You are more beautiful than anyone. And yet your body had a flaw. Your small hands were not beautiful. And I am afraid that you will run and paddle to the wrist in that mysterious, always brimming lake where those that have obeyed the holy law paddle and are perfect. Leave unchanged the hands that I have kissed for old sake's sake. The last stroke of midnight now dies. All day in the one chair from dream to dream and rhyme to rhyme I have ranged in rambling talk with an image of air, vague memories, nothing but memories. You know, and the astonishing thing is there are many poems like that. Yeats's reputation would be exactly the same if he hadn't written this one because there are so many great poems. But I, for me, often these smaller, not famous ones like Sailing to Byzantium really uh, have a place. And I think it's worth reading all of Yeats for that reason. And Thank you, George, so much. Thanks for reading this poem um, and for and talking about Yeats today on the program. Um, 
Do you have another project up your sleeve with Yates that we can look forward to? Well, I may possibly do another one. Scribner has to ask me because they own the copyright. Oh, uh, that's right. Okay. But uh, what I'm thinking of now, and I've been publishing occasional articles on, is going back to my relative who uh, got off the boat in Ireland. And I think there is a good book still to be written about Irish-Jewish literary relations. You know, the most famous of all, of course, is Joyce's Ulysses with Bloom. And so I've been thinking, I've done a couple articles on this subject, and I may end up writing something about uh, uh, Jews and Irish uh, in Irish literature. And so another trip to Ireland soon. Right, Absolutely, George? yes. I'd love to go there. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today and come back anytime. All, All right. right. Thank you for having me, T. It's a great work you're doing with this program. Thanks, George. George Bornstein um, and W.B. Yates, The Wild Swans at Cool. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. I am amazed. Constant sorrow I've seen trials all of my days I'm going back to California place where I was partly raised. Saludos, we are Rosie and Brian Amador from Sol y Canto. Estás sintonizado al 88.3 WCBN-FM en Ann Arbor. You're listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, 88.3. Bienvenidos, estás sintonizado a la media hora norteña. Salieron de San Isidro, Documentos les dijo. <tose> 